Is your blood pressure up? Listen, I told first service, like, that's like the, like, most intense, like, pre-message video ever. Like, I feel like a WWE wrestler right now. And um, I told first service that I was going to take off my shirt, but they were like, don't do that. Uh, I was like, you're right. Um, But, man, it's, like, so intense. It's in your face. Uh, But it is so good to see you. If we haven't met, my name's Dustin. I'm the campus pastor here. And uh, I was at our Harrison Bridge campus last week, so missed you guys. But one of the uh, beauties of our teaching model is every now and then we get a chance to go to another campus and to see what God's doing across campuses. And I just love that. We see that we say this all the time that we're one church, multiple locations. And so what happens at Harrison Bridge or at Malden or at Anderson or at downtown campus, man, it is incredible because it's our church. It's your church. And we get to celebrate that. So I was able to celebrate kind of the Sunday after Easter with them and wanted to celebrate uh, what God's doing here. Uh, Easter Sunday, so across all campuses, we had almost 4,800 people attend one of our Easter services, which is like crazy to me. Um, Right here at Five Forks, we had 445. Um, And so it's just awesome. You guys are killing it, inviting neighbors and friends and coworkers. Man, we want this to be an incredible place that Um, We're not better than anybody else. We're just trying to figure out, hey, we want to follow Jesus and grow and just really connect with him. And that's what we're about. Um, A couple things I just wanted to bring your attention to. Uh, I know Catherine had a lot of announcements and that's just um, when exciting things are happening, we want to um, communicate those. But two awesome opportunities for you to connect um, in the coming weeks. And it's one is to all the women in the room. Um, We are having on May 19th, a women's night. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, uh, no cover charge. No, just kidding. Um, but uh, a woman's night, women's night um, on May 19th, there's going to be coffee and dessert. So there's a QR code. You can snap that real quick. Um, and you need to RSVP. There, there is no childcare. So men, that means that we got to man up. Okay. And actually take care of the kids. You know, it's okay. You can do that. But with so many new faces as we've been growing, it is so good for the ladies in the room to connect with one another. Um, and who, um, who doesn't want to connect over coffee and dessert? Can I get an amen? All right. And so make sure you RSVP for that. There'll be some stuff that you'll see on Instagram, Facebook, all that as well. But that's a great opportunity. And now for the men in the room, um, we're not having like a man's night or anything coming up, but Tuesday nights, uh, or Tuesday nights, Tuesday mornings, we have a, ma- a man's group that is meeting here in the lobby um, or right in here on Tuesday mornings. So they meet, get some coffee, stuff like that. It's an incredible, incredible time. There's also a um, men's kind of golf get together that there's some flyers. You can go pick up some of that stuff in the coming weeks if you like golf and or whether you don't like golf, you just like to hack it and lose your ball. That's what I do. I'm like, oh, go into the woods and I get a new ball now, <laughs> you know? Um, if you like that, that's gonna be just a good time to connect with some men. So check those things out, get connected. Man, we're all about building relationships. But let's dig into scripture this morning. Let me kind of recap and kind of lay some groundwork. I wasn't here last week, but um, Chuck did an awesome, awesome job as we started to journey through this series called Counterfeit Gospel. And really the heartbeat, the premise of this idea or of this series is the idea that you and I, we live in a culture that has really spewed lies about faith and what it means to follow Jesus. And even it has affected us with inside the walls of the church. 
So as a result, what has happened is there's been some different things, beliefs, comments, things that are claimed to be scripture or claimed to be doctrine of the Christian faith, which are not. And they've kind of hijacked absolute truth and we've bought into them as scripture, as the gospel, and they're not. And so last week, Chuck did an awesome job talking about what we call the American gospel. This idea of your life is all about what you make of it and what you take from it. And it's all about you. And we saw this incredible story of this rich young guy who's like, hey, God, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, hey, you've, you need a, you've heard about all, these, all the commandments. And the rich young guy said, yeah, I've done all those things. I've, I've been a good person, essentially. And then Jesus says, but you're missing one thing. Go and sell everything that you have. And so it was like this, really this tension of, hey, you and I, this life is not about the American dream and about us and having all that stuff. Man, it's about Jesus. And so we're kind of going through this every single week, looking at these claims and how, how are they in opposition to Scripture. And this hasn't been a new problem. This isn't something that's just happened over the last few years or even a hundred years, it has been going on since the start of the early church. It's infiltrated. There are people like the Judaizers in the New Testament who would come in and say, yeah, 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 but it's Jesus and this, or that's not really true. So it's Jesus minus this type mentality. And Paul addressed this. Paul was this incredible guy that he went from Christian killer to encountering Jesus, to becoming a, a missionary, planning churches. And he would go to a church, spend about three to six months there, and uh, just really invest and pour into leaders and say, hey, we're good to go. And he would move on to the next church. And every now and then he would write letters. And that's the majority of the New Testament are these letters. And Paul would either check in and encourage, or he would rebuke and say, Y'all done made a mess of the church. And so 2 Corinthians is one of these times where Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, he kind of rebukes the church. But 2 Corinthians, he writes this. It'll be on the screen. Um, he says this, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning or craftiness, your thoughts will uh, have been led astray from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you have put up with it readily enough. Your translation might say easily enough that essentially we've kind of given in. We don't really stand firm for the gospel. We let other things influence us. In Galatians, Paul says this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Um, who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So people wanted to distort it then, and you don't need me to tell you this. People want to distort the truth of Jesus now. We have churches all across our country that say there's no such thing as hell. They don't preach hell. Or they say, hey, well, that's irrelevant. Um, that doesn't really apply to us, even though it's in the Bible. And this is why it's so important and why we felt like this was a needed series is that we need to know, one, we need to know the real truth. We need to know the gospel. And so that we can really be able to see counterfeit gospels and say, that's false. Um, someone in the banking industry at Harrison Bridge told me as a banker, they, they teach you how to realize an authentic 
um, do, you know, dollar bill, hundred dollar bill or whatever. So that when the counterfeits come across the table or the counter, they look like monopoly money. And so, um, you know, you, we've all been to the store and you see someone, you know, um, turning a hundred dollar bill and they're looking at the light and all that stuff. We need to know truth so that when untruth and false teaching come across, they were like, you know, as my kids would say, that's a cap, <laughs> you know, that, that's a lie. That is false. That's not of scripture. And it needs to be so important. And so just as a closing kind of business thing, I said this at Harrison Bridge. I think I'll probably say it every week just to kind of keep us in the right frame of mind. But as believers, if you are a believer, as believer, believer, the gospel of Jesus should be the lens that we look through for everything that we do. So everything that we do as a parent, the way you're parenting your kids, the way you love your spouse, the way you own your business, the way you manage your people, whatever the case may be, as a believer, we need to look through the gospel lens of Jesus and scripture. And so often we allow other things to creep in and say, hey, let's let the predominant lens of our life be politics and the way we voted. Or let it be a cultural trend of the day or something that we read in a book or whatever. Maybe it's a past experience or even a hurt or a pain that we allow those things to be the driving force. And as believers, not that those things don't play into a, a, uh, and impact our lives, but the priority needs to be the gospel of Jesus. That needs to be the lens. And so Chuck last week said, too often we look through the American gospel lens, meaning it's all about me. He even quoted the Bon Jovi song, It's My Life. I was kind of disappointed I wasn't here. I like Bon Jovi, all right? And um, I wish he would have sang it, you know? That would have been great. But, um, you know, and all of these things, if you think about in the weeks ahead, every single counterfeit gospel is really rooted in this idea that it's about me. We put ourselves at the center of God's story. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the counterfeit claim or gospel that says, God helps those who what? Help themselves. You probably have heard that, uh, you know, and it's this idea that, you know, hey, let me help and do some things and then God will help me. And it's so interesting, the Barner Group, which is this Christian research company, they did a survey of a lot of people and 80% of the people surveyed said that was a passage of scripture. They thought that was a Bible verse, that God helps those who help themselves. Then they kind of narrowed down um, and they they surveyed, quote, uh, practicing Christians. So I didn't know what that meant. And actually one of our uh, members first service said, hey, I looked it up. This is how they define practicing Christians. Someone who attends church once a month and says their faith is important. To me, I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. That's pretty broad. But even then, 52% of practicing Christians said that this was a Bible verse. They, um, uh, there was a small section of this study that actually thought it was one of the Ten Commandments. Can you believe that? And so um, it's, it's skewed. And really, if you um, think about this, it kind of came into American society. Benjamin Franklin wrote this thing called Poor Richard's Almanac, kind of birthed this idea, and it kind of crept into Amer American culture and society. But if you really think about this, now just connect the dots with me for a second. If we really believe that God helps those who help themselves. Essentially, what we are saying and believing is that the amount of God's grace is directly connected to the quality and the quantity of the things that I do. 
All right, let me read that again. I'll unpack it. The amount of God's grace is connected to the quality and the quantity of the things that I do or you do. Essentially being this, if we believe the counterfeit gospel is God helps those who help themselves, meaning God only helps when you actually help yourself, right? You put in the work, then he'll help you. Essentially what it's saying is God's grace is wavering, dependent upon what we put into life. So if you're a really good person, man, you get a lot of good, good grace. But if you're really bad, then not so much. And it's this, this really this um, dangerous balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's essentially saying, okay, dependent on what I do, then God will dispense grace accordingly. So if I'm really, really good and I do all this stuff, then I get God's grace. But if you're really bad, huh? There is no hope type thing. So I need to put in the work and it needs to be based on the things that I do. And if you think about that at its foundation, it's saying this, you control God's grace. Saying you're in charge of dispensing God's grace. Now think about that. That's not in scripture. It is a great gift that is given to us by God unconditionally. And so what we're going to see in the passage this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. And now I'm going to tell you, it's going to hit you in the face a little bit, and that's okay. But we have to get past this idea that you and I are the central character of the gospel, and that it all is dependent about me and my happiness and my success. That is not the gospel. We live in this American society that does this. And what we're going to see is actually the religious people don't understand what is happening and so Jesus kind of has this mic drop moment in Matthew 9. So to kind of bring you up to speed, Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 preaches his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he preaches, he unpacks all these incredible things about what does it mean to follow Jesus? Things like, hey, how to love people, how to deal with anger, talks about divorce, all of these different things. And so I tend to believe and scholars believe that we come across this guy named Matthew. He's a tax collector in chapter nine. And he had to have been on that hillside to hear some of these things or at least know who Jesus is and to hear some of his teachings. And so after this, Jesus approaches Matthew. He's a tax collector. Now, culturally speaking, no one liked tax collectors. Do you like the IRS? Exactly. Okay. And so no one liked him. But then on top of that, not only did he work for the government and his job was to kind of sit at this booth, people would line up on a day-to-day -day basis and say, okay, we owe the Roman government 5%. Well, in order for Matthew to make money, it was dependent on whatever he was going to charge over that amount. So if, if the government says you need to charge 5%, Matthew might say, well, I need 3%. And so now he's charging 8% and he would take his cut. So his people hated his guts. I mean, he's in the same category we're going to see as tax collectors and sinners. All right. They're, they're put together in this thing. And so Jesus shows up in this moment to really address and, and really invite Matthew into this and, and listen to what happens and what unfolds um, in the, uh, just a few short verses. This is chapter nine, starting in verse nine says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew or called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
and he rose and followed him. So Matthew actually becomes a follower. His life has changed. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm giving it. And so this is why scholars believe is this wasn't the first time there's an interaction here. So he says, all right, I'm, I'm all yours, Jesus. I've seen, I've heard, I'm following you. I'm tired of this stupid tax collecting thing. <laughs> you know, I'm going after you. And verse 10 says, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is Matthew's house. So after Matthew decides, excuse me, to follow after Jesus, it's almost as if he invites all of his tax collector buddies. It's a round table of sinners, if you will. Hey, y'all need to come check this out. You need to come hear about Jesus. And so he invites Jesus and his disciples and all of these other tax collectors to the table within Matthew's house. Now here comes the religious elite, the Pharisees. They see this. And in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Essentially, why are you hanging out with, with these outcasts? These are like the bad of the bad. No one likes them. And then Jesus responds when he heard it. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. So there's a lot to unpack here. Essentially, Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't come to show up and all these righteous people that are like, I don't need Jesus. I mean, I'm called here. I'm coming to call people, inviting them into my story who are sick and they need a doctor. So that brings me to my first point this morning. You're sick. And <laughs> don't you like that? Real encouraging. Go eat lunch. All right. You and I are sick. We have a problem. We have a illness. We have a disease. It is called sin. And that sin, because it is so debilitating and influences everything that we do, there is no possible way that you and I can help ourselves. We are totally deprived of, of anything good that, that God has. There's no way we can earn it. We have a problem. Now, in our world, we resist um, acknowledging that. We don't like to say that we have a problem. We don't like to say that we have a sickness or illness. And so what ends up happening is we kind of have these blanket statements or excuses that I would say in our life to kind of fill the gap, to try to justify what's wrong with us. For instance, people might say, well, that's just who I am. Or, you know what? You don't understand how I grew up. It's from my past. I've heard people, don't take offense to this if you're from the North. I'm from the North. That's how I act. You know, you hear all these things. It was from an experience. You don't know how I grew up. This is just who I am. Deal with it. I can't help it. I'm not that bad. It could be a lot worse. We've all heard things like that. And all those are our band-aids to cover up a deeper rooted issue that we have. And that's called sin. And so what ends up happening is we make all these excuses. And to be quite frank, we have been so conditioned in our culture to play the victim and not take responsibility. So when there's sickness, 
and there is sickness, that instead of naming it and saying, you know what, there is a problem, I'm acknowledging it, we play victim to everything else, and we don't take responsibility. We don't say, hey, I'm really, really sick. Now think about this. Have you ever seen the show Hoarders? Have you ever seen that? Now, I'm not trying to be insensitive because you might have a family member that's like this, but it always breaks my heart. If you ever see this, um, I forget, it's like, maybe it's on A&E or I don't even know what channel, but it's these people that are hoarders and oftentimes they go into their house and you see they've collected things. Like there's been episodes where there's like nine dead cats, you know, they find like under the, the pile of things. But here's what ends up happening is that a family member or friend witnesses the problem, the sickness, the people that are the hoarders don't realize they are sick. And they have people that come. And so the show, you know, it's like an intervention. They bring in um, counselors and interventionists and all these other things to come. And what you end up seeing are these hoarders that don't want to get rid of the things that are keeping them enslaved to this sickness. And they're like, they're like, okay, we're going to throw half of the stuff. No, 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 no. Well, that has a memory or whatever. And people are saying, hey, this is a problem. They don't see it. They don't recognize it. They have to have someone from the outside say, hey, this is, this is a problem. It's affecting all your relationships. Now think about this. We treat sin like that. We hoard sin and we hold on to it. Someone calls it out. Oh, it's not that bad. Or that's, that's attached to this memory or whatever that defines me. We have people saying, hey, no, it, it, you know, you have, we're like this totally blind. And we're like, no, it's not that bad. This is how I live. Let me hold on to it. And as we hold on to it, it affects everything. Like in hoarders, people aren't going over for dinner. You know, they're, they're, they're like stuck in like, uh, the confines, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But that's how we treat sin. It's because we are sick. We have a problem. We see Paul over and over and over. He says this in Romans um, 5, 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, that's the consequence. And so death spreads to all men because all have sinned. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I have a problem with sin. You have a problem with sin. Your kids have a problem with sin. We all have this problem. And here's the thing. We cannot diminish or reduce this and the seriousness of sin. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He was a Scottish evangelist. Um, you probably have heard, uh, he wrote like a little devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. It's really, really popular. But he says this, he says, sin is not a weakness, it's a disease. And I think some of, some of us are like, well, that's just kind of a weakness of mine. No, it's a problem. It's a disease that we all struggle with. And Jesus was saying, hey, I have come because this disease is affecting anyone and everyone. And the reason he came, this brings me to my second point, is that we cannot help ourselves. And that's because Jesus heals. So we're sick. We cannot help ourselves. If I had a brain tumor, I can't do surgery on myself. I need some assistance. And Jesus came because he recognized, God recognized we are sick. Now, I'm kind of confessing a little bit. I don't know if you're like this, but I feel like we live in like a WebMD world. Like when y'all get sick, do you check WebMD? I'm just, I like self-diagnose myself about everything. All right. So I'm like, I've got to search on there. I got to cough or whatever. Nowadays, it's like, I don't know if I have a cold, flu, COVID, or if I'm about to die. You know, I'm not really sure. 
But in a lot of ways, I just get on there and I'm like, okay, well, this medicine. And then I'm like the moron that I show up to the doctor when it gets too bad, you know, because I'm a typical guy. And then you tell the doctor, like, I've been to medical school and I'm like, hey, doc, this is what I have. I have like a respiratory infection, upper respiratory infection with an earache. And he's like, okay, let me do the checking out. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like this WebMD thing. But we live in this world where we self-diagnose at times, but at the same time, if, even if we realize we have a problem, we don't want to go do something about it. I've never met anybody who says, I love going to the doctor. So this past week, I'm, you know, I turned 40 this summer, and this past week, I've been having like shoulder problems, and so I went to an orthopedic doctor, and he's checking everything out, x-rays and stuff, and he's like, hey, we're going to give you a shot in your shoulder, a little um, cortisone. I'm like, all right, that sounds good, whatever, and so I was like all proud. I've had that before. I was like, it's not, it, it's not comfortable, but you know, it is what it is. So I'm sitting in the exam room. I take my shirt off. And I'm just waiting for him to come in and give me a shot. And then he comes in. He goes, oh, no, we got to go into this room over here. And I was like, oh, really? He goes, yeah, I got to use a machine to see how far I can put the needle in. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I did not want to hear that. Like, my palms are sweating just talking about it. Are you with me? All right. And so he goes in there. He's like, yeah, I got to use this machine. And what I forget what he calls it at that point. I don't think I blacked out, you know, but he's, he's like, this is your muscle. This is your bone. And he's like, just watch the screen. I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch the screen because I'll pass out. Some of y'all know that's what I do. All right. So, and so I'm watching the screen. I just see that needle go in. Right. And I'm like, oh my goodness, but we don't like to go to the doctor to be fixed. We think hey, you know what, it'll fix itself or I'll, I, I'll take care of it, right? We kind of buy it, it'll just, you know, let me just keep taking some ibuprofen, it'll be good. Well, spiritually speaking, you and I can't fix it. We can't help ourselves. You can put some Band-Aids on it, some temporary relief that feels good in the moment, but we need help. And Jesus is the only one that heals. And we know and we search and we live in a world that tries to fix it. We try to play doctor and kind of prescribe our own remedies, if you will. So we do things like, you know what? I'm just really unhappy. So let me just change jobs. I'll fix it. You know what? Let's get a, another house. That, that'll fix it. Let me kind of put some money here. And maybe if we have more savings, it'll, it'll feel good. Let's go even deeper. Hey, you know what? I'm kind of done with this marriage. If I, if I had another spouse... It would feel better. So we start to bring all these things, trying to remedy the problem instead of going straight to the physician. Jesus says, he says to these, these Pharisees that are so arrogant, think they have it all together. Who does this guy think he is? And he's like, hey, I'm coming. I'm the physician. And I'm coming to those who are in need. And essentially all are in need. The Pharisees don't see it. They see the, the, um, the tax collectors and the sinners. They're like, oh yeah, they're really bad. But what Jesus is actually addressing, he's like, hey, listen, you're in this crowd too. We all need healing. We all have this sickness. We all have this, this stuff that's just getting in the way and this disease that is affecting everything about us. And I think this is so true. If you think about this, the mission of Jesus wasn't to see your success and to help you in life. He saw your sickness and wanted to heal you to give you life. Think about that. 
The mission of Jesus wasn't to come and say, you know what, you're doing a good job. Man, keep it up. Be super successful. And let me throw some bones your way. You help yourself and then I will help you. What Jesus's mission was, is that he saw your sickness. He saw that you were down and out. This problem of sin has separated you from a holy God. There is no way because of sin for you to have a relationship with God and to spend eternity in heaven with him forever. The only way that's possible is that God saw your sickness. He sent Jesus to heal you and to give you life. Now, let's be honest. When we're living in sin, when we're trying to band-aid this problem in our life and trying to kind of put these temporary things and satisfactions, you know, to kind of fix the problem, you and I both know, you don't need me to tell you this, but anytime we are consumed with sin, it is a dark, dark place that does not give life. I've never met somebody who's addicted to pornography that's like, man, it's so life-giving. I've never met someone who is a pathological liar that says, you know what? I'm so happy in life. I love just walking and kind of manipulating situations. I've never met someone that says, you know what? I'm not happy in my marriage, so I'm gonna go over here and kind of have this side thing, and it feels so good. Let me just hide it from my kids and all these. I've never met anybody who is, who is in this, this realm of sin that says, I have life. Jesus knows that. And that's why Jesus says that sickness needs to be healed so I can give you life. The only way, that's why Jesus even said, he goes, I am the resurrection and the what? Life. I am the bread of life. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Over and over and over, we see these things that Jesus is the way of life. And we buy into this thing that I help myself, then I'll have life. Man, I'll work really hard, man, we'll have life. I'll have a, uh, a house on Lake Kiwi, or I'll have a beach home. I'll have nice cars. I'll have a nice nest egg when I retire. Those things are great. I hope you have those things. Invite me over, okay? You know, but the, at the end of the day, what is so important is where is your spiritual health? Where are you spiritually with God in this? Because you cannot help yourself. He wants to heal you and give you life. First uh, Peter chapter two, Peter writes this, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might, might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds you have been healed. So really to flip the counterfeit gospel of God helps those who help themselves, really to reverse it, to be the true gospel, it is God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. When you and I realize, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. That is the foundation of following Jesus. Every day, you and me coming to God and saying, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I need you. I'm dependent on you. I need your strength in that. In closing, a third point this morning out of this is Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This should do something in us that shows um, that we must care. That as people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs that are sick, if you are a believer, it is our responsibility. It's like this. If I'm at the beach and I know how to swim and someone is drowning, am I just going to, like, if I'm on a boat, am I going to be like, hey, good luck, buddy. Hope you make it. I'm going to get out and help or throw a life preserver or something. 
Man, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, and in our families, people need us. They need us to care. They are sick. They have a problem. They need people like us that have been healed by the blood of Jesus to tell them about the cure. They need people like you and me to invite them into this incredible relationship with the most unbelievable physician to recognize, not in a judgmental way. I think we're really, it's easy for us to point out everybody else's ailments and diseases. Like, yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's right. That is a problem. But once we've been healed, we need to invite people into this story to say, God can heal you. Man, let God do what God does and bring you life. And so we need to, we need to care about people, about people that are next to us in our neighborhoods and on our streets to say, man, God, what can I do to bring them to Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize this morning, there's no way around it that we do have a sin problem. We have an illness and it affects everything that we do. The way we care for people, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our friends, maybe our kids, coworkers, it affects our own lives, that we're not really truly living life the way that you intended. And so Father, I pray that as we respond in this closing song, that one, man, we would give to you anything that's just keeping us from following you those things that we're trying to fix ourselves or we're like, hey, I got this. And our pride is getting in the way of saying, I have a problem. That Father, just in the the next few minutes during this song to say, God, I do have a problem and I cannot fix it. And I need you. I need to give you my life. Take it. Bring me healing. Forgive me of the sin that separates me from you. Father, I pray for the individual with great boldness that will do that this morning. As well of those of us who are just struggling with the everyday life of sin, that we would be reminded every day that we need you. You don't need us, but we definitely need you. Give us that heart and that desire. And then to care about the people that we encounter on a daily basis, to show them who you are, that you are the physician who came and to call, not the righteous, but the sinners, the ones with baggage and hurt and sin to have a relationship with you. And that's all done because of the blood that your son Jesus shed. So as we worship, let us be thankful and have a heart of gratitude for the blood that changes everything, the blood that redeems us and gives us life. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Hey, let's stand up and respond to what Jesus is saying this morning.